All right, so I was in a shooting, and I was not in a good place. I'm sitting in a doctor, and this doctor, his name's Eugene Stefanelli. He's the, the doctor for the PBA. He sits in his office, and he's an old-school Italian from Newark. Puts a Colt 45 World War II Bakelite handles. He puts it in my hand, and he's watching. So he's like, hey, listen, I got this. He's a gun fanatic, and he's like, I got this gun. I want to you know, see what you think of it. It's a beautiful gun. Puts it in my hand, and he said, as soon as that touched your hand, he goes, I knew you weren't going back. Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. My name is Dennis Benino, and I have with me today Kevin Donaldson. Kevin's going to tell us a cool story. He hosts a podcast. I'll let him tell everything about himself. I'll probably do the service if I try to do it, but I appreciate you being here today, brother. He actually came into in-studio, which is awesome. We could have that happen because he's a Jersey guy, and uh, it's just better when we can have people in, in person. It's nothing like an in- in-person podcast. You know, you just, I can't feel what you're saying. Like, I'm, if I say something offensive to you, which is a high probability, if I say something offensive to you, I can read your body language, I can read your face, and through Zoom, you get it, but it's just not the same. I would challenge you to try to find some way to offend me because <laughs> I probably have the thickest skin. I don't know what you could say to get me to get worked up. I'm just so thick-skinned, dude, because I just don't give a fuck about anything. Talk to my wife for a couple minutes. She'll find a way to affect Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. different. Yeah, yeah, it's different. Yeah, they, they seem to get you a little bit. Dude, so tell us about you. Give us the bio. <laughs> I'm a retired police officer. I've been retired now for almost nine years. I've been, I haven't gone to work in 10. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a lifelong New Jersey resident. Grew up in the Atlantic City area, North Jersey transplant. And, um, you know, unfortunately, I had to retire because... I was in a I was in a shooting that sort of took me down a pretty dark road. How did you become a North Jersey transplant from Atlantic City? Because Atlantic City's basically Delaware. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're you got it's quicker to get to Delaware from Atlantic City. Oh yeah, than it is. Oh, yeah. You know, you don't realize it. Like when you go to Cape May and you look laterally across the line, it like lines up with Dover. Oh yeah. So you guys are fucking Delaware. Let's face facts. <laughs> Outside of the fact that Atlantic City has. Probably three of the best restaurants in New Jersey. Oh, you're going to talk about the knife and fork. You're going to talk about Angeloni's, uh, and and what's the the one in the basement? It's a touristy thing now. I, oh, it's so oh, good it's, though. Yeah, it's, it's a touristy still thing good, now. Dude. I, I tell you what, Chef Volas, Chef Volas. That's it. I you know I never went there. Cafe Twenty Eight Twenty Five, brother. So you got to go to Knife and Fork. Have you ever you ever eaten Twenty Eight Twenty Five? No, I've never eaten it. Wait. Take you two weeks to get a fucking reservation, but I'm telling you, it'll blow your mind. I've been in North Jersey now for longer than I've been in South Jersey. When I was 17, I went away to college, and South Jersey didn't have anything for me anymore. Or anything in general. Yeah, yeah. so once you're out of Atlantic City, <laughs> that's it. There's Although nothing there. Now. It's like, people don't realize that it is desolate down there. Well, that's the whole reason for the Garden State. It's not North Jersey. No. The Garden State is here and below. Right. Right, so. It's a very interesting state because in... The two and a half hours you drive from north to south, I mean, it changes dramatically. And if you end up in Salem County, you're like, am I in North Carolina? Salem County's a little, yeah, that's a little rough. When you start seeing farm silos. Dude, like not in farm silos, but like cats rolling up with like 24-inch spinners <laughs> on like jacked up like Buick, like Buick Regals. and Like it's great. You would think you're in North Carolina, dude. It's wild. Sand, like dirt everywhere. Different type of people. They're not even from New Jersey. No. I had a guy, I, this true story, I went to a, a class, uh, The Rock hosted it, 
I don't remember where the guy was from, but there's a Chick-fil-A there. So everybody went to Chick-fil-A for lunch. This is years and years ago. And it's all Jersey guys. So I'm seeing a bunch of Jersey guys. This guy walks up. He's like, let me get a number one and uh, let me get uh, some French fries. And I'm like, oh, what's up? I'm like, where are you from, dude? He's like, I'm from, I'm from Jersey. And I'm like, what? Where? He's like, Salem County. And I'm like, come on, dude. No, nah, no way with that accent. So living in North Jersey as long as I have, I've lost my South Jersey accent. But every once in a while, people will tell me it, it creeps in. I don't, you know, listen, there's different terminologies. Like a creek in North Jersey is a creek down there. Yeah. And, you know, stuff like that. Ta- pork roll, Taylor ham, that whole, that whole debacle. I don't think there's much of a debate. I think the brand is Taylor Ham. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It We're says it on the package. We're, it's, it's, it's Taylor Ham. It's pork roll, Taylor Ham. Pork, pork roll's roll. the product. Taylor Ham's the name of the, of the company that makes it. Correct. But if, you go to North Jersey, it's all Taylor Ham. And there's arguments. There's, there's legitimate arguments. Oh, it's, about a, it's, it's, a, it's the stupidest thing in the world. Yeah, it's correct. <laughs> when, I'm, when I'm telling you, I'm right, you're wrong. That's all there is to it. I'll submit that I don't have energy to fight the Taylor Ham pork roll uh, argument or who's got the best pizza argument. Um, but I can point you to some places around here that will blow your fucking socks off. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm all I'm all ears on that stuff. But the hardest thing I had to overcome moving into North Jersey is being a Philly fan in a New York atmosphere. I listen. I am a pilgrim in an unholy land when it comes to that stuff. I know. <laughs> so, you worked in North Jersey? Yeah, I worked in a town called Roseland, New Jersey. Yeah. Uh, I got hired in 2001. Went into the academy in what Mid- academy did you go to? Essex. Okay, so I was in Bergen in 2001. Okay. So, oh, see, the Ber- the Bergen Police Departments, your producer and I were talking about the Bergen Police Departments and their pay scale. That ex- They don't exist anymore, but... Yeah, the, the, the pay scale in Bergen is quite good. Well, yeah, yeah, so you think that's cool. There's some, uh, I know of an agency, and I don't want to say it publicly, that just settled their contract, and five more years, their patrolman do 190. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yeah. I was just saying, 150, 150 is like the norm in Bergen, Bergen County. Yeah, well, dude, I mean, essentially now, 125 to 140 for most of the state is a typical patrolman salary. Mm-hmm. And people have to understand that are listening to this that it is ridiculously expensive. And even at that, to live here, and even at that pay scale, you're still broke, just so you're clear. Yes. You can barely live on that here in this state. You're living. You're not living well. You're not living high on the hog, but you're living. Right. Yeah. And, and they don't realize that, like, cops in New Jersey are kicking in, like, 46% of their salary. Yeah. Back to 10% pension contributions. Christie's changed it around. Now you got to pay for your medical benefits. So guys are like, yeah, I make 150. I'm like, if you made 150 in Pennsylvania, you'd have almost double the income. Probably. No bullshit. Yeah. So like, I know even instructors at this company who make maybe 20,000 less, but their paychecks are 20, 30% higher than the ones here in New Jersey because of the flawed systems that we have. It's 46%, dude. It's it, like, unpack that for a second so if you're making 125 you're literally taking home about 65 grand a year sixty-seven thousand bucks a year no bullshit sounds about right yeah that's right so um and that's before anything that's before you have any expenses that's just what your take-home pay is going to be so you're like that's that's crazy yeah we know we know but that's you know that's you know that going in there you know this job is never going to make you rich but it's going to give you a living the difference is, is you know, when when they switched to the pension scale. So when I got on, you were contributing eight point five percent into your pension, and then they upped it to ten. Well, that might not sound like much, but it was all because the public employees' pension system was broke. Yet they only went from three to four percent. You know, it doesn't make sense. We our our 
pension was self-sufficient at one time until the pension system got unfortunately robbed. But yeah, yeah, that, that kind of hurt. But even, even upon retirement, I remember guys going through retirement saying, you know, I, I did the math. I'm only making about three or $400 less than my, my salary when I retire because no, no union dues, no pension contribution. And there was a couple other hidden fees in there to take from your paycheck. So it didn't behoove a lot of guys to stay past 25. I can't even convince people that that's the truth. And I, one of the great mysteries of my life is to try to understand why people don't want to change like things the way they are. And it's the same excuse from everybody. Hey, you're going to leave at 25. You're getting close. You get three years out. Oh, well, I don't, you know, I'm not going to leave just yet. I'm going to do the 30. I'm going to do the third. I'm going to do like till 33 years. Now I'm going to think about it. Like you realize how much money you're losing by sticking around. Just that I just don't understand. And then when you explain it to people, they're like, "Well, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying, but like I have kids going to college. I need the off-duty work." I'm like, "You realize you can go get a job for like seventy-five thousand dollars a year, pretty much anywhere, and with twenty-five years of police experience, and then you'll have your pension and that. And you're not contributing to that, and you can actually, by the way, if you want to go to the federal system, you could start working on your next pension if you want to stay in the government." And they're just like looking at me, and I'm like, "I actually had somebody say to me." You know what, dude, I'm just scared. And I went, I appreciate that. Yeah. I'm glad that you just finally said that. Well, there was two schools of thought. Our, our police director went first day to the academy. He said, you're a fool for not staying, pa- for staying past 25. And he broke down all those financial reasons like you just said. Until I met a guy who was a deputy chief. And he was making good money. He wasn't getting his chops busted. He pretty much did his own thing. Got a car to take home. And he goes, if I leave here, I'm going to go to a job where I'm going to be the bottom of the barrel. I'm going to have two weeks vacation. I'm going to have to work, you know, Monday through Friday and stuff. I'm not going to have access to the road jobs. I'm not going to have this. And it really, so it depends on your. your Can I just say something? That's a complete bullshit story that he told himself. That's complete crapola. That that's an excuse that he's held on to, to stay where he's at and justify it. Because I can show you many jobs where you're not going to work Monday through Friday, right? You can pick your schedule. Deputy chief. He just, that's the excuse he told himself. And people tell themselves that shit all the time. Here's one of the best ones. I don't have a college degree. What am I supposed to do? Uh, neither do I. And most successful people that I know don't have college degrees. So you can subscribe to any story you want to tell yourself. And the coolest part about telling yourself a bullshit story is then you can go find like three other people that will also enable it and say, we agree. It's the same thing. And you always avoid the people who tell you the truth. Hence why some people don't like hanging out with me because I extinguish the bullshit. I think it was more about his station in life. He was comfortable in his job. He liked That's his right. job. He was comfortable. Too. He was comfortable in his job and he liked his position in, in okay. the police Respect. department. Respect. I mean, if, if you're going right. to bat, just don't complain of, you know, that you don't have money or this and you can be comfortable. Just be honest with people. I like it here. I don't want to leave. I love my job. Mm. Um, I get it. I get I'm losing money. I appreciate that, but I like it here. The guys like me, I complete respect. But just don't start with the, I have kids going to college by that time. Blah, blah, blah. I don't have a college degree. How do I find a job? Although, excuse, excuse, excuse. I need off-duty work. Just shut the fuck up already. For me, I always said to myself, if because my station in my department, I was, a, I was a heavily involved in the union, so it wasn't the greatest. I would have had a tough time staying past one day past 25. I'm like, what, you want me to sharpen a pencil? Fuck you, I'm retiring. I mean, in all honesty, that's that's the level where I was. Um, unfortunately for me, I didn't even get that opportunity. So, you know, I, I would have liked to have done my full 25. But um, I heard you say on another podcast, and it's something that resonated with me because you did 14 years, mm-hmm. was it? So I did, I did 13 years. And in that 
13 years, when I left the police department, there was no walkout. There was no gold watch. No. There was nothing. As a matter of fact, I was ostracized because most people thought because of my critical incident and trouble I went through that I was faking it. But I've seen people in t- their full 25 years who haven't gone, done a goddamn thing in their whole career, but sit there and go get coffee and work midnights with their pillow and sleep. And they get the big walkout and uh, the horns and the chief gives them the plaque. With, like, I'll tell you a quick story. I'll give this, this is a fun reveal. Um, and again, I'm just making a point off of piggybacking off yours. So when I, after I left a couple of years later, a friend of mine who had left on the same terms that I did, he said, did you buy your old gun back? And I was like, what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, the transition to new guns at the PD. They called and I started calling a couple. I just called a couple people that I knew that were retired as well. And I'm like, Hey, do you guys get an offer to buy your guns back? And they're like, yeah, yeah. I bought my gun back at like 400 bucks. It was an HK USP 45. And, um, I never got the call. You know what I mean? So I actually found it to be quite comical that there was that kind of angst and anger because people were under the impression that I was mad and I left. And I'm like, guys, you realize that I had surgeries and I I literally to this day still, I'm not trying to say I'm, the, I'm in a wheelchair and I'm breathing through a straw. Um, but when we talk about the capabilities of what I can do physically, 40 pound vest on, right? 10 pounds of gear here. Carrying out of the things. car. It, yeah, listen. I, the in and out of the car was was a tough thing for me because that belt really screwed up my yeah, back. Well, I'm just saying, like, I'm not trying to sound like a bitch, but what I'm saying is, I have 900 pages of medical, and that wasn't fabricated. You can't fabricate MRIs. Like, I didn't have somebody with a destroyed knee laying an MRI machine to put my name on this. I mean, it's it's a fact. It just is what it is. So, if people want to know what it is, I I don't have any cartilage left between uh, in my knee. So, anytime. You'll never see me run because I can get about four or five steps and I'm like literally the pain just shoots. So the only way to have, so imagine two bones in the middle is your cartilage and it's supposed to be a cushion. So when you put impact on it, your bones don't hit. I don't have any cartilage left. That's destroyed. So when I, when I got my injury, they had to go in and laser all the bad shit out from the injury and that left me with nothing. And then, you know, dude, it was a surprise to me when the doctor's like, you're not going back to work. And I was like, are you? What, what are you talking about? It's a know? hard, it's a hard feeling when they say oh, fucking you, shock. You, I can tell you the moment I was there. I, sh- I mean, literally shocked. I was like, "What are you talking about?" You know. I had a doctor. I had a doctor do that to me, and the way he did it was all right. So I was in a shooting, and I was not in a good place. I'm sitting in a doctor, and this doctor, his name's Eugene Stefanelli. He's the the doctor for the PBA. He sits in his office, and he's an old school Italian from Newark. Puts a Colt 45, World War II, Bakelite handles. He puts it in my hand, and he's watching. So he's like, hey, listen, I got this. He's a gun fanatic, and he's like, I got this gun. I want to you know, see what you think of it. It's a beautiful gun. Puts it in my hand, and he said, as soon as that touched your hand, he goes, I knew you weren't going back. And and at the end of that session, he goes, yeah, you, you, you have to retire. Because he saw the look in my eye. And I've been handling a gun. Listen, South Jersey kid. I've been handling guns since I was five years old. Mm-hmm. I, I never had any fear of guns whatsoever. It was, it was like I was, somebody put a 50-pound weight in my hand. And I'm looking at him like, and I don't want to be, I, I, again, I don't want to be a bitch. And I'm like, ah, you know, get it away from me. Get it. I'm like, oh, it's really, it's a great gun. It's great. Meanwhile, I'm starting to break out into a sweat. And I slide across the table. I'm like, wow, that's, that's pretty good. You know, I think you should put that away, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So that, that, was, uh, that was my moment. And I'm like, retire. Like, oh, shit, what do I do now? And that was, that was my holy shit moment. People don't realize that. In some states, they have excellent retirement plans, and and obviously for 
there's a reason why there are medical pensions and dis mental disability pensions. And because somebody at some point had understood the significance of this job, what is required to do this job and how significantly it could impact your life. And I don't think that 99% of the people who ended up having to leave earlier than they thought ever thought that they were going to have to leave early. Uh, I really do believe that. So these things were put in place for a reason. I'm sitting here, you know, I didn't know we were going to go down this, this rabbit hole a little bit, but I just want to emphasize that to folks that you might have it in your state and you see a lot of these men and women who are shot in the line of duty and go back to because they have no pension plan. Mm. They don't have a choice. Either that's they're going back or they're not getting anything. Where if that happened in a state like ours or New York or Connecticut, you know, they would retire you. But these guys are like, I don't have a choice. I know a guy who lost his foot and went back because there was no pension system, no pension plan. He had no other option. But here's the problem with that, going back like oh, that, especially crazy. When, when you're shot. The next time you go on a call that's on the border, whether something you're going to react in a certain they way because of what you had happened to you. And then, so your first time getting back on the job. I know a guy, uh, he, was, he was in three shootings, and he says, the first time I went back, he started jacking people up because everything was a threat. Everything in the world became a threat to him. And by the third time, he actually had somebody point a gun at him, pull the trigger, and there was a misfire. And he, like, the, the, it gets worse and worse and worse. And he said to me, he goes, if you go back, there's one of three things that are going to happen. Either you're going to get fired, you're going you're gonna, to um, lose, your, lose, your, uh, lose your pension, you're going to die, or you're going to kill yourself. Or I'm sorry, you're going to get arrested or you're going to kill yourself. And one of those three things is going to happen because you just amp it up. You bring it to another level because you're hypersensitive. Um, We've heard that from a lot of guys who've yeah. been on this show who were shot in the line of duty of some of their therapy is going back to the place. You'll hear them the first week, first two weeks they're on, they're riding with somebody and like they're hearing calls come out like possible shots fired and they're like straight up in a fucking complete panic in the car. Scary shit, man. Took me nine years to go back to the scene of my shooting. Wow. And I just did. And I, I actually took my my thirteen year old son because he had he they were young when I when it happened. He was three and my youngest was like seven or eight months. And I've tried, because it's aversion therapy, I try I've tried to go past this it's a townhouse complex and I could never make it I could never turn into the street. I could never get in there. I would just keep driving right through it. So one day him and I are out riding around and I said, you know, let's take a ride. And him and you pull in the back and in the back, you can, it happened on the back deck of a, a middle townhouse. And I'm looking at it and he, he had known I'd been in a shooting, but he didn't know the full details. I remember him looking at it going, wow, that's really small. I'm like, yeah, it was, it was up close and personal. So nine years and I was not okay Going by, looking at it, I'm like, oh man, this this is weird. This is strange. So let's go into some of that stuff. So post retirement, what is Kevin Donaldson up to? Right now, uh, I'm the I'm the co-host of the Suffering Podcast. We've been doing it for about two and a half years. Um, and what we do. So when I, when I was going through my bad times, I didn't know how to get out of it. I couldn't get out of my own way. The only thing that really helped me through, and this is after going to rehab, going to mental health facilities, I was in a mental hospital. I didn't know how to get out of my own way. And my family really took the damage. I just wanted to get back to some sort of homeostasis when it came to that. Uh, I got involved in group therapy with other officers who were in shootings. Because when you go through something like that, 
you have all these this rush rush of emotions. You're supposed to be this alpha male, this strong person who can take anything. You're a cop for Christ's sakes, but you you can't you can't deal with bangs, thunder and lightning storms scared the shit out of you, uh, fireworks forget it. Um, you go from zero to a hundred in a second. There is no buffer zone, so you go from thought to action, and you you find yourself incredibly emasculated, incredibly weak. But when you got in a, when I got in a room with all these different people who were in shootings, they exhibited very similar signs to me, and I'm like, okay, well, maybe I'm I'm not alone with this stuff, and we would have fun, and we'd return to a little bit of our normal selves, breaking balls. I mean, the doctor would put out a, a sign out sheet, and you know, it's I'd sign, you know, bend over, and I jeep my drawers next to my name, and then we'd all get a laugh, so a little bit of normalcy when you know, the lockdown happened, therapy went away. I needed something to fill that void. So I started the suffering podcast and I initially wanted to gear it towards police officers and, and their, their trauma and their struggles and how they got through them in order to, to get it out there. This, this may help you, you know, this, what, what it worked for them might not work for you, but it might, you might grab one or two things. We opened it up to people from all different walks of life. In that show, we've had gangsters we've had cops we've had dirty cops we've had rape victims we've had child molestation victims and they all they all found a different way to get back around we never bring somebody in that's in the in the throes of their trauma you have to have gotten through it because ultimately i want to get all that stuff out there so people can grab some things from it and um you know and that that has led me to co-authoring a book with detective chris anderson from uh, reasonable doubt called man you were crazy because for a long time i could have swore up and down that i was crazy <laughs> it's a hard word to say but now i own it but that's the whole thing with the suffering podcast so suffering i believe it's that suffering that really is what made me great is what made me who i am today it, it sucked while i was going through it and i spent a long time trying to avoid it but once i faced it head on <clears throat> I started to find some peace and others who have come on the show have, have found peace by facing their suffering. You know, I spent too many years drinking, drinking it away and doing a bunch of other stuff that was very unhealthy. Let's go over a few things here. Um, the first one is when you talked about the fireworks being significant and you having a reaction to hearing fireworks go off yesterday, I was riding with my kids around the neighborhood and I have my thoughts on my 4th of July party because you know, we're like four months out from that shit, right? Mm -hmm. Less at this point, if you're listening to this podcast. And my neighbor Vance is a, I think he's a general or a colonel, one of the two in the army, and he's a combat medic. Uh, actually, he's a, he's a field surgeon. My apologies, not a combat medic. So I guess he could double down as a combat medic as well. Sim and his brother, they're actually twins. They've been on Dr. Oz. He's a full-time surgeon. And he's got a real Goggins feel to him if you ever meet him. Oh, real yeah, good yeah. dude. So, you know, when, when the 4th of July comes around, he actually passed a comment to me one time. And he's like, hey, man, I'm not trying to be a dick or anything like that. But, like, I know you guys are firing off fireworks before the 4th and after the 4th. He's like, it fucks me up. He's been to, I don't know how many deployments he's had. But, dude, since I've lived there for five and a half years, he's been deployed at least three times at, like, eight to ten months a clip. And... I'll talk to his wife because, like, we try to kick in, give a little bit of a hand. We're always available if they need us. And she's like, nah, they got, like, they got rocketed last night pretty bad, you know. So 
He's been through a lot. He's seen a lot. And, you know, now I just understand that I'm not going. I, and I say to him, look, dude, we have the big 4th of July party at my house. It's huge. I put a fucking hell. It's like a carnival. It's unbelievable. You haven't, have you, did you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this year you'll come. Do you have plans on the 4th, Frank? Okay. If you miss that, I'll fucking be devastated. Your wife will thank you. Yeah. Your kids will thank you. Anywho. So now I just hold on to it for the 4th of July. And I said to him, hey, man, do you care if I, this is like my thing on the 4th. He's like, no, no, no. It's good. But he leaves. Yeah. And where I, you know, do my little display, he still is pervy to hearing it and seeing it. But he's got to go home. And he stays inside. And he tries to, like, just flush it out. And I try to respect. Obviously, I have tremendous respect for him as a human being for what he's been through. But I also try to respect the fact that, yeah, it's fun for me to shoot shit off. My kids love watching me do it, but I try to really limit, you know, how much I do it before the 4th of July. I try to just keep it to the 4th now. But I live in a town where, <laughs> dude, I think most people live in my town because they like the fact that it's almost like a free country where I live. So you, it's not uncommon to see kids like driving on the street on quads, side-by-sides, but not like, the kids who stole them are doing wheelies down the main road. They're just going to the trails mm -hmm. and people shoot off fireworks and people, you can shoot guns on your property there. People like that feeling of freedom in New Jersey. So they're just real true conservative Americans, but you know, trauma is very interesting switching gears a little bit. And you say the word crazy, but the real, the reality is I think anybody's susceptible to becoming quote unquote crazy in a traumatic incident. And it's often not till you're out of trauma and you've maybe healed from trauma that you didn't realize you were actually in trauma. Yeah, so I'm normal. working with somebody right now who is a good friend of mine who I can see trauma because I've been through it. I know where he's at and I'm giving him really good advice about what my, I'm just picking up on the little signals and I'm like, Hey man, you are, you are right in the middle of it right now. You are in good. You are in trauma territory and you need to continue to keep doing your work with whoever you're doing work with and you will come out of it. And I'm just here to say like, hey, there's hope at the end of the tunnel. You know, life is never going to be fair, but this thing you're going through, I know exactly what it is. I've been there. I've been you. I just got out of it. And let me just give you some confidence that you're going to be okay. So it's a, it's a, so trauma actually affects the brain. If they do a brain scan on you. Your brain, your brain changes, and the synapses don't fire the way they, they should. And just to give everybody an idea of what it's like, you know when you're walking down the street and you see somebody who pissed you off, owes you money, you don't like, say, man, I'd like to spit in their face, All right? But there's that part in your brain, there's that speed bump in your brain that says, eh, it's not a good idea. When you, after you go through trauma, especially the, the critical incident like I did, that speed bump is gone. So do you know how many times my wife got spit at by me? Got a remote thrown at her? Damn. I mean, because I thought it, something, something happened, she pissed me off, boom, done. There is no speed bump. So you get yourself, and it just keeps going down and down and down. So the term crazy, crazy, the way I look at it, refers to any type of uncontrollable emotion. You don't know where it's coming from. You don't know how it got there. You don't know how to deal with it. So that's why I use the word, the word crazy. Cause again, it's, I've taken a long time to try to rebrand that word suffering where suffering is actually the good thing in life. I'm trying to rebrand the word crazy, crazy. When you have an uncontrollable emotion, you better learn, learn a little bit about it. Otherwise it's going to overtake you. So, but the, the getting back to the fireworks thing, I used to go hide in the closet. 
Like I would hide in the closet. And what you need to do is watch a dog's reaction to fireworks. A dog will sit there and shake, not know what to do, not what know what's going on. And it's very similar reaction. And uh, unfortunately, the dog I had at the time wasn't afraid of fireworks until I was afraid of fireworks. Interesting. So it mimicked, the, the dog mimicked my behavior. Um, and then there's, there's the coping mechanisms. You don't know what's going on, so you try to cope with it any way you can. Well, what's the easiest form of, of coping? You take a couple drinks, which ended me up in, in rehab. I went to Princeton House. Did not like rehab. Um, the funny story about rehab is I could put in a room. My brother's a cop also. I could put in a room with a guy, and nobody knows I'm a cop. At the time, I was, I was out for probably two months, long beard, long hair. I definitely don't look like one. I could put in a room with a guy, and, and we're talking. He's like, what are you in for? I say, yeah, I got a drinking, I got a drinking issue. He's, I said, what are you in for? He goes, I got hit with uh, drugs. He got arrested with drugs. Oh, really? Where'd you get arrested? He names the department my brother's on. I'm like, oh, I, like I, before he even says it, before he even opens his mouth, I know where this is going. Oh, do you remember the name of the officer who arrested? Yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget that motherfucker. I'll never forget him. It says my brother's name. I'm like, oh, Jesus. But rehab taught me one thing. Did he ever find out you were a cop? No. Okay. No. Rehab taught me one thing. I had a problem with alcohol. I was not an alcoholic because some of the people I saw in rehab, I'm like, wow, they brought a guy in who was, God, it took him three days to detox and you could just smell the alcohol bleeding out of it. Now, when I went into rehab, I took it very seriously, like everything in my life. I went in there with three notebooks, five books. I, I said, I'm going to make this work because I have to. I was about to lose my family. And some people... Before the night before they go to rehab, what do they do? They, well, this is the last time. This, it's, you, you're not ready for it at that point. If you're right. going to tie one on, you're not ready for it. So I, I was ready for it. But that's how most police officers deal with their trauma because a bottle of alcohol, twenty-five to fifty dollars for some decent stuff, even cheaper if you want to go bargain basement, versus a therapist, which is what three hundred dollars an hour. Plus, you get stigmatized by going to a therapist. You're, you're that guy that is crazy, you know, and people sort of shy away from you. So cops are, and that's something that's got to change. A police officer will go into the academy and he'll become this physical specimen. You know, they'll train, they'll run, they'll work out, they'll do everything they got to do. It's changing now, but when I went through, they spent very little time on mental health. Very, very little time. And that's the space that I'm in now. They spent zero, three academies. It wasn't talked about once. Yeah. Isn't it crazy? Yeah. And that's the, that's the rigors of the job. You know, it's hard enough having your body put up with a 25-year career. Your mind, because over time, all that stuff you see, that that weighs on you. All right. Even if it's not an incident, if it's not incident specific. You know, I always say that we're given a we're given a glass when we're born. Okay. And in that glass is the amount of stress and, and anxiety and, and horror you can see. If you don't learn to empty that glass, eventually it's going to spill over. And it could be something innocuous, something that happens every day that's just going to make you break. My, gla my glass spilled over just because I wasn't prepared for what happened. But don't think for one minute that the autopsies and the motor vehicle, fatal motor vehicle crashes and the dead babies and the homicides, don't think for one minute that didn't play into it. You know, there are things that are associated with this job that you can't change. However, this is why I spend so much time trying to address the things that we can change. And a lot of that stuff that I talk about is administrative and coworker behavior. Mm. We just had a class last week in Cincinnati, actually one week ago today. And I was like, you know, what, 
what do you do when somebody gets in trouble, let's say for drinking and driving? Because a week before that, I had a guy who came up to me and said he had been arrested twice for drinking and driving, and he was on a better path now. But when you hear a story why he was drinking and driving, immediately you'd have a, a lot of compassion for him. And I told this story in class, and I said, so when your coworker gets caught drinking and driving, do you ever ask why that happened, or you just assume they're a fucking asshole? And on top of that, we know that you can't talk to somebody or about the facts of the case, but it doesn't mean you can't talk to somebody about are they okay. So all of you walk around and prance around wearing this blue line shirt. However, do you represent the blue line, or you just wear it because you think it looks fucking cool? And so if you're going to wear that shirt, the line that I hold so very dearly to my heart, Ask yourself a question. Last time somebody was in the hopper or in trouble or at an IA cooking or got themselves jammed up, what caused that? And I'm not talking about obviously what caused it was they were drinking and driving. Why were they drinking and driving? I thought about this this morning. I said, man, I bet yet 95% of DWIs have some real crazy backstory to them of like, how did you end up here? And a lot of it probably wasn't just because I wanted to party. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's like, I'm an alcoholic because my father raped me for six years of my life. I'm an alcoholic. I'm abusing alcohol because, dude, I've done some weird shit, right? Like, I, I when I started going through trauma, I look back on it. I'm like, fuck. Like, I was doing weird ass stuff. And a lot of people didn't see it. I was doing weird ass shit. I'm thankful to not be doing weird ass shit anymore. I'm also thankful to know what it is when it starts to surface again. But, you know, so... One of those things we have to start deploying is compassion about how did this person get into this situation? We could just start with the non-judgment around an internal affairs investigation. How did this happen? Why did this happen? What are they struggling with? You know, I think everybody in that room was staring at me like, I never thought of it that way. I go, I know, because it's so easy to shun somebody while they're going through something, but it's a real power if you can embrace somebody and let them know that, hey, I'm here for you. I can't, I, you can't talk to me about the case. I don't want to know about that, how much you drank, what you do, why you did it. But what I can tell you is, if you need somebody to talk to, I am here. If you need anything, I can do anything for you. Because guess what? Nine out of ten times, they're coming back to work after the two-month suspension, one-month suspension, six-month, whatever it may is going to be, three days, five days, ten days. But it's so comical to watch how people get shunned. And I got in trouble early in my career, um, actually multiple times. And there weren't many people who reached out to me. Matter of fact, the people that were my cheerleaders and were happy with the work that I was doing – because the work, I got in trouble off duty and it's always tied back to alcohol. And it's amazing how fast people turn their backs on me and no longer, I was no longer in, da da da. But I always remember the two or three people that were like, hey man, I've been you before. Mm-hmm. Like it's going to be all right. Right. Um, I remember my lawyer saying to me for one of these incidents, he's like, you know, I was just talking to a guy at another agency. He's a lieutenant in internal affairs now. And I was his attorney 15 years ago when he was in trouble. Same like you were. He's like, so don't lose hope of, that your career's over because he's a lieutenant and we always laugh about he's now the internal affairs lieutenant. And, you know, things come and go. It didn't sink my ship. Um, and I think it comes back to a lot of irresponsibility. I don't want to say society, but of the agency, because when we take young police officers and don't give them guidance. We are not doing a good job for them. I'm talking about guidance even outside. So I tell people in class, here's a few tips. If I have a little time and we want to throw a little extra stuff in there, first one is don't bang your coworkers, right? <laughs> That's it. This one's going to go real far for you. You want to bang another cop? Go to another town. Go to the next county over, wherever you want to go. You want to bang you. You're a female. You want to hook up with somebody? Hook up with a cop two towns over. Don't, don't bang your coworkers. 
Uh, number two, just know that 99% of cops get in trouble and lose their jobs because of something having to do with alcohol. And the other 1%, it's due to bad relationships with crazy-ass motherfuckers. So that, that goes for guys and girls. Crazy-ass fucking women and crazy-ass men. I don't know how you end up with these crazy-ass motherfuckers, but when you see the signs that this person is crazy, it's time to get the fuck out. I know they're hot. I know they're good in bed. I know it feels good. But as soon as you see somebody's a fucking lunatic, you can't change them and you don't want to keep them. Move the fuck on. Because I'm going to tell you, you're going to wish you heeded this advice two years from now when you're internal affairs and they're saying, gun and badge, and here's your pe- uh, letter pending termination. You're going to say, fuck, I, I wish I would listen to that guy. And dude, every time I do that in class, I give that little speech. I get like nine people come up and they're like, I'm living it, brother. It's right? simple. Yeah. It's, it's just a simple piece of advice. But alcoholics do not become cops. Cops become alcoholics. Mm-hmm. That's the big thing right there. And again, like you said, why? Why is all this happening? Is there some? Is there a bad? Re- and I've been through. I, you know, I've had the bad relationships early on in my career. I got jammed up because of a bad relationship, and then I get. I, I didn't. Thankfully, I never got jammed up because of alcohol. I was. I always kept it under control most of the time. But there's always a reason behind why something's happening, and um, always. But but alcohol, yeah, alcohol is that. Because it's easy, it's cheap, it's it's fun to do, it feels good. For, for how does it make how does it make you feel? In the beginning, in the beginning, there was like ninety five percent joy, five percent pain. But tell fun, me about that a little bit. So with alcohol, like the ninety five percent joy and the and the five percent pain. Hey, listen, when you're going when when I was hurting, when I was hurting real bad, and I couldn't find peace, I couldn't sleep. Some drinks of alcohol and probably too many would put me out make me forget about it. I'd be able so to you started self-medicating self-medicating. Right. But then over time, what you see is that seesaw effect where then it becomes, but by, by the end it's 95% pain and, and that, that alcohol, it skews your decision-making process. I mean, that alcohol led me to seven or eight suicide attempts after my shooting. So I wouldn't, I don't, I, I have to believe that I wouldn't have been led down that path had I not been self-medicating with alcohol. How did it feel good when you, obviously, you felt like you were restless? See, and the, the reason I ask this question is, alcohol doesn't do for me what it does to people who've become addicted to it. Mm. You know what I'm saying? So my abuse of alcohol was different. It was to supplement a vice that I had that I was, and I'll be honest with you, dude, I just, I was out and about, I enjoyed the party life, and I was, I was addicted to women. And that went hand in hand, and that's where the alcohol abuse came in because that was the road to the party life, too. And I got I always tell people, like, alcohol is my best friend, my worst enemy. And I think if you really unpack it, it's probably your worst enemy more than anything. Hey, guys, if you're enjoying the Street Cop Podcast, do us a favor and go give us a review on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you're listening to us. Tell a friend. We don't charge anything for the episodes. We appreciate your support. Check us out on any social platform by putting into the search bar, Street Cop Trading. Give us a follow. We have a lot of free content coming out every single day that you might not catch here on the podcast, and it's important for you to be able to do your job more professionally, and we also entertain you as well. In the beginning, it was just something to make everything stop and just... It was the only, it was the only thing that made it stop in the beginning. You know, I would go out and, uh, you know, you couldn't, I couldn't work. Right. So what do you do? You do anything you can. Idle, idle hands do the devil's work. You do anything you can in order to stay occupied. Well, a couple drinks, I just, I'm up at eight o'clock in the morning, start drinking. I don't stop until I pass out. 
at night. And it was a repetitive thing over and over again because he had nothing to look forward to. He had no purpose in life. And it wasn't a vice thing. So I understand what you're saying. But for me, it wasn't a vice thing. It was just to quiet my life mm-hmm. and bring me down a little bit. Then it just became it's interesting. Some, something I did. Yeah, and I asked that question because I think some people have a hard time understanding how that happens when alcohol doesn't have the same euphoric effect or calming effect. For me, alcohol in my life now is... I'm not saying I don't do it. It's infrequent. And I know the repercussions of indulging in just a few drinks and how it just ripples through my life and fucks shit up in the sense that I'm so super busy. I'm also the father of many children. And that completely impacts the progress of my life. I can't focus at work the next day. Uh, I can't work out. I'm probably eating bad. I am not present for my children. All these things I'm so happy with now in my life that I am very rarely willing to trade off the alcohol to interrupt what I do and well, how I live my life. It's the so do you know who Jesse Itzler is? He wrote yeah, the Living yeah, with a right. He He married the Spanx girl, right? He married uh, I forget her name, but uh, and I'm sorry, everybody. I don't mean to sound like a chauvinistic asshole. Spanx is a company. Yeah, yeah. I just don't know her name off the top of my head. And I believe me, I respect everything she's done. She's a billionaire. She's impressive. I watched her videos. I just can't think of her goddamn name. I can't. I yeah. can't remember her name. And I can see her in my blonde hair woman. But so he said, "Remember tomorrow. You can do whatever you want." As long, and I teach this to my kids. Remember tomorrow. You want to go out and get shit face drunk? Well, tomorrow you're going to have to pay the big boy price. You want to go out and eat? Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, or not to bash on those, but they, they're not healthy food. Everybody knows that. Go ahead. Well, you better remember tomorrow when you're feeling like garbage. I'm going even, to like, even throw in that you're going to remember that about May 6th when your pool opens, your friends are over for the first time. It's I, I call it the day of truth. <laughs> and there's nobody in this world who has access to a swimming pool that there is not more a more truthful day in your life than the first day you have to get almost naked in front of everybody during the day mm-hmm. when every flaw comes out and you have to then say to yourself, what did I do? Mm-hmm. Now, it's either one or two things. Thank God I didn't or thank God I did. Which mm-hmm. one's it going to be? And now we're getting close, dude. Now you see people starting to panic, right? And we're not even close enough yet. Oh, you see it in the gyms now. The gyms are packed right now because May 6th is approaching. Right, dude. So it's like it's not even. It's not there yet. That comes about three weeks before. So you're probably mid-April when that next real rush comes. So the, when you feel that warm weather, you go, oh, I'm going to be shirtless soon. You know, so again, I'm self-deprecating. I, there are things about my parents that I don't like and things about my parents that I do like. But I know I'm going to Mykonos in June, right? I'm actually going to Orlando next week with my kids. Um, that'll be the first reality as it's gonna be 90 degrees of Did you me do going, work i mean i feel pretty good but i also know that like i'm way behind where i want to be and i'll have to pay the consequences yeah so it's, it's always remember tomorrow and that goes on yeah. down the line with everything you want to you want to be one of those cops who goes out and bangs every girl that's great i'm sure it'll feel good like you said well it stops feeling good after a while let me just say that <laughs> i want to throw like uh, no bullshit um it is there was a moment in my life where that was a real thrill and it became who I was and people, you know, associated me with that. That was my identity at the, at the job. Same with alcohol. Yeah. It's the same, it's the same thing. Feels good in the beginning. Not at the end. Dude. I remember, I remember when that happened for me, I'm like, 
this, this, this is like, I'm, I'm, this doesn't even do anything for me anymore. This is ridiculous. Uh, and then I would tell people if you're going through something like that, the beautiful thing is when you have deep, meaningful relationships and you add that in, well, that's when it really, really is wonderful. And that's what you should be chasing. Um, the cheap thrill is the cheap thrill, but it lasts very short, man. Mm. It's a 15, 20 minute cheap thrill. And, you know, even, Believe me, once you've settled with the fact that that's not going to be who you are anymore, oh, it just relieves so much of the burden of your identity and how much that's detrimental to your progression of who you are as a human being. But that was the same with alcohol with me. Yeah. Once, I, once I've made that conscious decision, and, and it happened in rehab, I'll tell you right now, once I made that conscious decision, alcohol is not part of my life anymore. Now, I know, I always remember tomorrow, if, if I'm at a party or something or I'm in a bar and everybody's drinking and everything, yeah, I could have a drink. Absolutely, I could have a drink. But I got to remember tomorrow, is it going to take me down that same path? Is it going to fog my brain? Is it not going to allow me to work out or spend time with my kids? So I do. I hold that maxim to my heart more than anything else in most of the stuff that I do. Am I successful all the time? No. Neither <laughs> am I, dude. I'm, I'm not. Like, neither am I. You have no idea how unsuccessful I am. And people called me last week. He's like, ah, you're a millionaire, right? I'm like, what makes you think I'm a millionaire? <laughs> like, tell me where my fucking Ferraris are because I don't know. Do I think that I've had some success? Sure. I get my fucking butt whooped all over this building all day long. I, people don't realize that. Mm. You know, so. So that's something that, that I've, I've been able to temper my, my, of my, my stuff with, but it's also what helps me connect to connect to people. So, you know, listen, we could sit here and talk about, we could trade war stories. I did this on the job. I got this medal on the job, but you're not connecting to anybody. If you do that, when you open up your vulnerabilities, like your, your addiction to alcohol and women or my addiction, to my pills and stuff like that. When you open up your vulnerabilities, that's when you start to connect to people. And that's what makes you, that's what makes me a valuable podcast host. Because I'm able to connect people. People people will look at me and say, "All right, he's not he he under he may not understand specifically what I went through, but he understands trauma, and I can open up to him. So that's what connects me. So in in the short version of that is you impress people with your successes, but you connect to people through your vulnerabilities. There's no question about it. And you know, I I actually learned this from a friend of mine who was dealing with a gambling addiction. I never heard this before, and. He goes, I had to accept that I have an obsessive personality. Me too. Yeah. You're, you're talking to one as well. Yeah. And he said, but here's the good news. If you have an obsessive personality, there's good obsessions and bad obsessions. Those good obsessions are good things uh, within context. And I was like, man, I never thought of it that way. But how much more do you like yourself now? A hundred percent. Yeah. And you know what? I gravitate towards those people with those obsessive personalities. Well, you're here now. I, I, I tell you right now, because those people who are obsessive with alcohol are the same people who have the ability to be obsessive in every other aspect of their life. You put them in a business situation where they're, they're, they're focused on that, on the task at hand. They are ultra successful people because an addictive personality, that's every successful person down the line. You think Warren Buffett is not a, an obsessive person? Oh, he's obsessed. Absolutely. Yeah. You, you think the, 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 any politician who's at a high level is not obsessed? Absolutely they're obsessed. But that's what makes them who they are. And they've had some, they've had more failures than victories. I guarantee you. Yeah. I mean, obsessions, good and bad. Mm -hmm. So don't take it as a detriment to who you are. Take it as a real superpower to embrace and channel towards something that's important. I mean, you know, dude, I think about everything that I do. There's actually a book that's by Grant Cardone is very successful entrepreneur. It's called be obsessed or be average. Mm -hmm. I mean, if that phrase doesn't 
essentially resonate the truth of what we're talking about. And dude, I was obsessed. I've been obsessed with the success of being somebody who could achieve goals with women, right? That girl's super hot. I know I can have that, right? Mm. And then I would say to myself, man, if I could take this and put it towards something that is valuable. Because we're not built for independence. Human beings, cops, on down the line, we're not built for independence. We're built for union. You know, we partner up. Not even with a man, woman, like your partner on the street. That's how we're built. We're built to work together with everybody. Those people who go out and do things clandestinely and independently, they're rarely successful with that. You know, maybe a couple of them are, but they're an anomaly. They're not the norm. Just to piggyback off that just a hair. You know, I saw a TikTok video yesterday. Again, I have the craziest ADHD in the world. And it was a funny video. I don't want to go too much into detail on it, but the one girl said, would somebody please love me? In this video, like joking around, it had to do with, well, I don't want to, it's just a little more, <laughs> not much for this podcast, but anyway. Um, and I thought to myself when I saw that, you know, love is probably the best thing in the world to experience. I don't think there's anything better than love, anything worse than hate. So you think about that, really. Everybody is on that path to find and feel love and be loved. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing when it's pure at its purest and its finest. Just love is amazing. It's an amazing thing. But people have to understand something as well. Life is not easy at times. And when I've embraced this, it really helped me a lot. And it might sound a little negative, but it's not. It's just the truth. You're going to be on your own a lot, right? That's just the way it is. You know, you're going to have your friends around. They're going to tell you. They're going to help you. They're going to tell you this. This guy's going to help you. That girl's going to help you. I'm here for you. I'm here for you. Even even some of your most loved ones, you just got to remember something. It's great to have them, but you also have to acknowledge that, man, I'm going to be on my own a lot. Like things are going to happen. I got a friend of mine right now and he's probably going to listen to this podcast and he is uh, battling cancer. And recently something happened in his life where he felt very betrayed due to his cancer diagnosis. And I said to him, You're going to be on your own a lot. I told him that a while ago. I said, this journey, it's you. You can't look to me. You can't look to these other people for help. You can't look for financial help. You just got to say to yourself, that stuff is extra. If it comes along, that's great. But you're going to be on your own, dude. I mean, I'm on my own a lot. I have people in this office who support and help me and all other shit. But dude, I'm telling you, I'm on my own a lot. I know that very deep down in my soul. But that's why having the right people around you is so important, that support structure. Because- there are going to be times when they're there. We fill our we fill our lives with people who we think we need in our lives rather than the people who should be there. And you know that that's that's something with the group therapy. I've surrounded myself with these people who are good for me, who are good who I can reach out to. And it's a rare thing. You're right because everybody says, "Hey, if you need me, call me." Well, hey, bro, I need you today. I'm sorry, I got to get a haircut. You know, and they're never available. Mm-hmm. But if you surround yourself with those the true backing of people. And that's what a family does for you. And that's where my trauma started to separate me from my family. And even to this day, it's still, I'm still trying to get back to my family. I couldn't relate to them anymore when they should be the rock. They should be the person that the people that I can always go home to and be myself and just let down my guard a little bit. Um, thankfully now I'm allow, I, I, I allow myself to be in those relationships and the people who I bring in, 
they become family to me. I know I might not call them every day, but I do keep in, I keep in contact with probably 95% of my guests because they, they shared their vulnerability with me. So I feel connected to them. I always will. And I, 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 I love them dearly, each and every one of them. Um, but yeah, they, there, there was too many alone times. Let's talk about your children, a child's perspective and vulnerability. And I'm going to just relate this to my experience. Uh, maybe even this past weekend, and I've gotten really good at this, something frustrated me tremendously. And it actually shifted my mood a little bit because I had a lot going on. It's a very interesting past weekend for me. But during that time when I had a lot of stuff on my mind and I've got a lot of things going on here at the company, I'm always trying to deep dive into my meta state where I tap into this part of my brain where all these wonderful things come out of these thoughts and ideas. I get there, but they're often interrupted by many children in my house of young kids. So anytime I feel frustration towards that interruption, I just look at my kids and I go, okay, let me see it through their eyes. Their father's their best friend. Their father's the funniest, you know, they're the funnest guy they got in the house. Their father's their bro, and they just love every minute with their father. How would I feel if I was them if their father was in a bad mood and telling them to leave him alone? What would that do for me? So when I see my kids, I stop and I'm in a and I don't get in bad moods. I just had a lot going on and, you know, daddy, daddy, dad, 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 dad. I mean, it's all day. So I got four and it just, dude, it's like a, like a Gatling gun of dads all day long. <laughs> it's fucking nuts, right? But I always say to myself, what are they thinking? Then I stop and I be their father, the one they want to show up. And even if it's for a couple minutes and then I can disengage a little bit, I make sure that I am not doing to them what probably most parents do to their kids and just shun them and tell them, go, go find something to do. No, no. They, they seek their father. They seek him here. So you have to be vulnerable to let your shit go. Just let your fucking stupidity and what you've got going on in your life go. And the crazy thing is sometimes I look at these kids and I go, if I was at their funeral tomorrow, would I trade this moment? Back in what I wish I had, I had spent time with them. If these kids were in a casket tomorrow because of something, would I have been happy with how I acted today when I had that real opportunity to spend time with them? I look back and when I almost took my own life, um, I always thought that they would have been better off without me. I see that that, again, it's a big lie that you tell yourself because you, you're not thinking rationally. But there was an incident with my son shortly after my shooting. Uh, I couldn't take anything being pointed at me. All right, so my son's got Nerf guns because I'm, I'm a cop. And, you, of course, you buy your three-year-old Nerf guns. He points the Nerf gun at me, and I snap. I grab the Nerf gun out of his hand. And, I, you know, you, you know the maneuver where you, they teach mm -hmm. you in the academy. I did that. I snapped it in two and threw it in the garbage. I, watched, I looked at my son's face, and the mouth was open. Just that agape, like, yeah. what the fuck just happened? It scared me so much. Scared me way more than it scared him. I walked out of the house, and I lived in the woods for three days because I'm, like, I, I'm this monster my kids have seen me seen me do things that i'm embarrassed to tell you about they've seen me act in a certain way rage wrath uh, anxiety that i have to sit there and that's why now they're coming of the age where it's time for me to start sitting them down and saying this is why dad was like this. This is why it happened. Because my kids are so polar opposites from one another. One is the tough guy, sports guy, and the other guy is very creative. They're, they're equal parts of me. Mm -hmm. 
and one's more sensitive. One's just doesn't let his emotions out. And I try to, I make the one that's overly sensitive, toughen up a little bit. And I make the one that's tough, a little bit more sensitive. Like I just got a text. Um, some stuff was going on last night and, and I wasn't able to be there when they were going to bed. And I text my oldest son, which is not common. He's 13 years old. I mean, he knows everything. I said, Hey, Hey buddy. Um, I love you, pal. It's not normal for us to text like that. He texts me back. He goes, I love you too, dad. And I'm sitting in my car and and I'm not, I cry more than I can ever admit right now. And I'm sitting in my car and I'm just bawling crying because here, here's this 13 year old teenager. You know, the guts that it had to take for him to say, I love you back. So piggybacking on that is that vulnerability that I showed him enough to tell him buddy, I love you. I love you. You're always going to be my son. And he, listen, he does dumb shit. He does. He's a 13 year old kid. He does incredibly dumb shit. But I also tell him when I, when I have to discipline him or whatever, I don't have to, I, thankfully I've never hit my kids. I don't either, by the way. I, it, yeah. it doesn't work. I was, I was, I had the shit beat out of me when I was a yes, kid. It it's did nothing. It's completely stupid. And I see this in class. Sometimes people are like, well, how do you discipline them then? And I'm like, well, you learn how to fucking behave as an adult and put a little more extra energy and effort and time into how to be a good parent. And you won't have to hit your fucking kids, you stupid fuck. I'm able to look at my kids. I'm able to give them a look saying, calm down. And, I, and thankfully, it's, it's served me well where I've never had to lay a hand on them because it doesn't work. It, you, it, you're going to meet aggression with aggression. That's correct. Yeah. They're going to use other people. They're going to, they're going to, people who hit their fucking children, I swear to God, they, to me, they're just one, um, probably lower intelligence and I assume would be subjected to it by their own parents. I saw there, there was, I was out in a mall once and I saw, a, a parent spanking their kid in the mall. Oh, I'll fucking kill him. And there was a part of me that wanted to go up to him. Well, I'm bigger than you. How would you shit. like it if I just sit there and beat on you for a little bit? Except you could fight back. The kid's not going to fight back because they're scared to death. Right. There's, there's, so my kids have seen every bad behavior known to man. I just want to pause for a second, dude. I just want to tell you that, like, I remember how my father made me feel when he hit me. Yeah. Or how fucking awful it made me feel. Yeah. Over now, my father's a fucking lunatic. He was a lunatic. Yeah. So none. And I would get hit for the dumbest shit because he couldn't control himself. Then I had a fucking lunatic mother who's still a fucking lunatic to this day. You know what I'm saying? You and I got a lot in common. Yeah. Well, no shit. How did we end up here together? Yeah. You and I got a lot in common. Keep going. I'm sorry. Um, So I I try, I try to train my kids to, to let their emotions out, be tough when it's necessary, be the protector, be the, be the, the traditional male. Cause I do believe in that. I, you know, we have a role to play in society, but also don't ever be afraid to sit there. I'm the one person in the world that trust me, I understand when you're coming. I understand when you're not feeling well, I understand when things are going bad, but I'll always be there to back you. And I have a, I have one rule with my kids. Tell me the truth. And I promise you, I will never be mad at you. You lie to me. You're going to see, you're going to see me yell. Cause I can yell louder than anybody else. And, um, you know, thankfully they're pretty good at it. They're pre- I got, I got, I'm very fortunate. I got very good kids who had, um, and, and here's another problem. And you probably deal with this as well. They see their dad. They all got YouTube. They see their dad on YouTube and talking about certain things. They've all seen clips of me and you're waiting for that day when they come up and say, dad, tell me a little bit more about this. You know, like I'm waiting for that. Mm. And I coach you sports and I've always waited for that where a parent comes up to me, Hey, I saw you on YouTube and you were talking about X, Y, and Z. And it didn't happen to me for like six years. It didn't happen to me until last year. A parent comes up and it was, a, it was the weirdest thing. And I want to share this. Hey, I saw you on YouTube. And I just let out one of those. 
all right, this is going to happen. Let's get it over with. So, wow, you know, that was real. That was a really good talk. And, you know, I work for a mental health facility and, and it really just solidified stuff. I showed it to my patients. It was totally not the reaction that I was looking for. So I built that up in my head and it was false. Um, but do you ever, do you ever get worried about that? Your kids are going to see you say something on here. No, <laughs> they don't watch the show. Uh, they're young. They're younger than your kids. And I am a pretty open book, even to my children. I'm actually looking forward to the day where I can tell them all sorts of shit that I can't tell them now because they wouldn't even understand it. And I curse my fucking brains out at my house, and they curse too, and I think it's the funniest thing in the world. But they're the most respectful kids. They'll never curse in front of you until they know it's allowed to do so. Um, so I don't hide behind this facade that I'm this different guy in real life versus how I come in here. It's just authentic. It's who I am. And and uh, I'm not one of those conversationalists of being a prude or, <laughs> and people get really hung up, like, especially when you meet people who have daughters and, um, <laughs> you know, people think their daughters aren't going to have sex. I don't know why they think that they're going to be able to stop their daughters from having sex. And it's always the com the conversation of like, you know, in my end, like, oh, well, you have a daughter now. I'm like, yeah, kind of fucking make mistakes like everybody else did. You know, we'll give her the best guidance we possibly can. And my kids, the best guidance we possibly can. We think we're qualified to give good guidance as parents. But essentially, they're human beings. Scary. I was having a conversation with somebody uh, this past weekend, and I hopefully don't ruffle any feathers. And somebody said, well, my kids need to go to college. Da, da, da. And I go, why do your kids need to go to college? She goes, well, everybody's kids got to go to college. I go, my kids aren't going to fucking college. And they ask me all the time. I go, and you're hung up on this story. And she goes, well, you know, I want them to like have a really good job or open a business. I go, but what if they're an artist, right? Why can't you just hope that your kids are really good people, right? Why are you setting your goals for your kids? I have four. Uh, I don't know how any of them are going to turn out. All I know I can do, and I told her just like this, is that I'm going to give them everything that I can to ensure they're good human beings and let them find their ways and hopefully try to cut out some of the long path to the short path and help them understand. But maybe one of my kids wants to carve wood for a living. The only thing I say is don't quit. That's the only, yeah. that's the only thing I tell my kids as far as their future, whatever you choose to do, see it through. Don't ever quit. Well, hold on. Let's pack. Let's unpack that for a second. Let's talk about commitments and quitting. Quitters, winners quit, right? If you think about it, winners quit when they know there's a better way to go. So that's not quitting. That's, that's a different, yeah. But, I don't, but, what you're don't, but people sometimes look at quitting like, oh, well, I'm a loot. No, no, no. Um, sometimes you recognize, especially when you own a business, that you're not good at business. So you could sit here and spin your wheels all day and say, this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm good at. I mean, we, here's the most recent one. We did five, we have five new shirt designs. We had a sixth. People didn't know this. The sixth design, we spent, I don't know, 150 bucks on an artist taking a look at what we had drawn up doing this, vectorizing it, then another couple hundred bucks on this. We had a prototype made, and I just went, just throw in the fucking garbage. Just, that's it. And they're like, well, what do you think? I go, no, no, it's done. This is sunken cost, right? So people have to understand what a sunken cost is. Sometimes you have to quit on something because it's never going to come to fruition. I've got five other pieces that came out. <laughs> Wonderful, I'll show you some before you leave. So, But that's a tactical retreat. There's a difference. I'm talking in reference to, like, say, a football season. Right, correct. Right? You start football... And it's a finite season. Right. You start football, right. you're going to finish football. When season's over, if you don't want to play next year, I'm good I'm good with that. That's okay. I'm talking about right in the middle well, of it. Well, so about college being finite then? 
right? College is a four-year commitment. Mm-hmm. What if four months into college, you realize it's not for you, but you're going to go do something better? That's, that's different. Like a trade school or something I, I like that? I think anything, dude. Yeah. Like all of a sudden you're on Udemy and you learn how to code or you learn how to write copy and you realize you're one of the best copywriters. That's not quitting. Right. That's just figuring out how to do something. I'm just saying that to you to discern to our audience. Yeah. Oh, no, the absolutely. The two because I could hear these parents like, you're going to go to college for four years. Really? No. Because I can show you half this office who's got $100,000 in debt and I don't require, and they have really good livings here and they're all, and I have no requisition of you having some kind of fucking paper degree that your mom, makes your mom happy. Your police job. Now, I don't know what your department requirements were. Zero. All right. High school diploma. Mine, mine too. High school diploma. I could have gotten, I have lots of graduate degrees. I could have gotten my job without being in all that debt. I did. That is, that is yeah. 100% correct. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes when you start something, you just figure out that you have to do something else. That's not quit. See, that's not quitting to me. Right. But people that's, get confused on that. That's why I'm, I'm yeah, making it no, clear. I'm not, not challenging you. I'm saying let's, let's clarify this to yes. people. Yes. Um, you know. I I agree that, and my kids know the rules. You know, you have kids. Sure. Hey, we got Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu today. I don't want to go. Mm. You're going. Now the cool thing is I just had a big unlock with the two that go to BJJ. Their friend Anthony got a gray belt. This makes them livid. And I go, how come Anthony got a gray belt? I go, Anthony's been going for six months, and Anthony's committed, and he shows up every single day and doesn't give his father a hard time. I said, you guys want gray belts? And they went, we want gray belts. I go, we got to do brother mm. let's show up and go for that gray belt you know it's pushing through adversity right and that's been the story of my life is pushing through adversity all right that's that's what that's what we're here to teach the kids through when times get tough that's not when you stop correct right that that's the the point i'm trying to make that's actually the hump you need to to get over and on the other side of that hump sometimes there's a little bit of gold somebody asked me this weekend <laughs> you're gonna like this analogy and I, you could probably associate it with life but somebody said to me What's it like running business? Jay actually asked me this question. She goes, what's it like running business? I go, you're in the Swiss Alps. It's beautiful. It's like that picturesque thing. You can look around and see the most beautiful landscape ever. And then somebody takes your head and mashes it to a fucking toilet bowl (laughs) and holds your head there till you can't breathe. Just about before you're going to faint, they lift your head up and start turning it around and show you they're in the Swiss Alps again. I go, and then when you get enough air back in, they slam your head back into the fucking toilet bowl and you start drowning again. And they bring you back up and you go, this place is beautiful. It's unreal. This is worth it to be here back into the toilet bowl. And that's business. And some of those people can really uh, associate that with life. I talked to my electrician this morning on the way here and I tell him about something. He goes, I said, but that's life, right? He goes, yeah, life's not fair. I go, life is never going to be fair. It just isn't. Mm. But it's how you see life and start to, emphasize the beautiful things in your life and stop harping and spending time on the bad things in your life. Hey, we're all very fortunate people. I mean, being born here in the United States makes you inherently fortunate just to start. But all the good things come in life from hard work. Everything good comes... I'll give you an analogy. If you were to hit the lottery tomorrow, like say you you you, you were born very wealthy. Well, the value of a dollar doesn't mean anything to you. Correct. If you were born poor and in accumulated wealth, you're going to hold on to that because you know the hard, the hard work involved. And that's how I came up with the, the, the name of the suffering podcast because that suffering is what makes you value the end result. That's where the gold is, man. It's yeah. in the suffering. That's it. That's it. Where you find yourself. Mm-hmm. Suffering's fucked up. But once you're through it, you're proud of that shit. Yeah. And if you, if you know that going into it, like this is going to suck at times, it's something that you really strive for. It's like, it's not like you go out and you look for suffering, but when it happens, you deal with it. You get through it, 
you face it head on. You don't try to like if you if you got bills coming in there and you just don't pay the bills. Well, those bills aren't going to go away. They're going to stay there. They're actually going to grow and grow and grow until they consume you. But if you face them head on and deal with it in a in a business like manner, let's say, you get through it in a shorter duration. And when you get through on the other side, you'll have so much more appreciation. And that's I have so much more appreciation for life because of what I went through. The guy who shot at me, I used to hate his guts. Guess what? If I saw him today, I'd give him a hug and I say, you know what? It sucked what I went through, but you put me right where I needed to be. I think life happens for us, not to us. People have a, that really confusion or that real confused ideology behind life and what it means. You know, one of the most impactful stories I have me not quitting was my first police academy. And we did agency training before we went to the academy. And day three of the agency, so we started on a Tuesday. So this is a Thursday. And they had overburdened me so tremendously with the amount of homework that I had to do that it was actually breaking me. And I had to do some soul searching that night. And I remember thinking, like, I'm just going to quit. But I was allowed to quit my whole life. This goes back to what you're saying. I don't let my kids quit. I told somebody this recently, and they actually went, that's actually a really good theory. When my kids commit to a basketball season, you're part of the team. You're going to be showing up. I don't care. Dude, even to my detriment at times, or some, I, I'll have kids that are like, you're just saying you're tired because you don't want to go. Let's go. Sometimes it looks like I'm kidnapping my children out of my house and putting them in the car because they have commitments to make. Now, twice recently, I almost didn't succumb or allow them to stay home. But last week, just just last week itself, number two had strep throat. So I'm like, where's he at? He's got BJJ tonight. And she's like, oh, he's sleeping in the guest room. I'm like, this kid's full of shit. So I opened the door, I see him sleeping. Then I went around outside to see if he's actually sleeping or pretending. So he's actually sleeping. That's right after school. I said, that's uncommon. That is uncharacteristic of him. I'm going to let him sleep. Next day, he's like, ah, my ears hurt, da-da-da. Ends up having strep throat. So I'm glad that I, you know, expressed or exercised some judgment on that instead of just pushing him out the door to be his dad and try to teach him lessons. But, man, if I would have quit that police academy on my third day, I mean, none of this would be here. This is it. It's just wild. So it's those moments in life where you want to quit that you have to keep going. And, dude, going through my first police academy taught me everything about me and how much further I could go and how much more I had left in the tank when I thought I had nothing left in the tank. If I would have quit life, let's say when I had a gun in my mouth, if I would have quit life, look at all these great things that have come my way after that. That wouldn't have been here. My kids, seeing my kids, that's one of them. Uh, my, my podcast, my nonprofit, my book, none of that stuff would have happened if I would have quit life. And I was ready to allow myself to quit life. But we're always put in positions that we're meant to be in. We're always, we're always put in hardships that, that are for us to teach us something. It's whether we're able to gr grab the lesson out of it. And that goes in police work, that goes in family work, because they're both work. You just keep doing and doing and doing. And a lot of times you don't see results, but you keep doing and doing and doing. And before you know it, amazing shit happens. Dude, I had something amazing happen to me yesterday. I can't even talk about it yesterday. And it was comes after a very frustrating experience literally moments before that into one of the most profound moments of my life thus far and I'm driving home after that because I came into the office here on Sunday so today it's a Monday we're recording this and I'm like man what a fucking life I'm living it's so wild right I have like celebrity friends I don't just have like celebrity acquaintances like celebrity friends How fucking weird is that right I'm like I 
get all these people that get to say such nice things to me. I get to travel around. I'm going to Mykonos in June um, to go out with this mastermind group that I joined. I'm going to spend time with all these people who make way more money than I do. Like, wait, like way more. I'm definitely the poorest guy in the fucking group. Um, which is great for me because it's a lot of humble pie and I love eating that shit. But I'm in a position to, to enjoy that and, and go and experience that. And it's just wild, dude. So every time I think that, oh, this was rough, this was unfair. As a matter of fact, some of the shit that I got going on right now that's rough and unfair, I'm like, yeah, fuck it. I don't give a fuck. Let's get this over with. Let's let's rip this Band-Aid off. Let the, let the bomb go off and let's fucking move on because we have so much more work to do. Makes that success taste so much better. It's just exciting, dude. I got to tell you, I don't think that anything's ever going to change in my life. I'll be doing this till the day I'm dead. It's just kind of who I am. But I think once you're through tough times, you're often reminded that tough times can only be so tough for so long. And it's like a, it's like a flight. If you ever fly in a plane, if you haven't, just so you know, I have never taken a flight where there wasn't some turbulence. And sometimes I've taken flights when there's significant turbulence. But the crazy thing is, plane always lands or you always find smooth air. It's fucking strange, right? So people always say, and I always go back to that Kanye West song when it's like, it cannot be darkness forever. Uh, Can't rain all the time. That was the crow. Yeah, so that's where you that's got just that from, the yeah. truth, dude. And when you're in that darkness, just know there's only one thing you can do to get yourself out of it. And that's to keep moving forward. One foot in front of the other. You can't see what's what's over the, the hill or around the bend or through the darkness or through the weeds. But I'm telling you, if you just keep one foot in front of the other, every day it's hard to do, but I'm telling you, you're going to be okay. And at, before you know it, you come out of that fucking thick and here you are at paradise. It's fucking interesting. The crazy shit is, it's going to get rough again. It just is. There's nothing you can do. But once you start getting some real time in the game and the game of life, you realize that, all right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna be okay. Mm. Going to be okay. You know, you're just going to be okay. Yeah, it's, you know, this too shall pass. That's my shit, dude. Yeah. You can listen to my stuff. Uh, which my stuff. Did you listen to the, I always say this too shall pass. This too shall. No, I, I, I forget where I heard that. It's, I heard it somewhere. Don't jack my shit, Kev. I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. I'm joking. Listen, dude. we're all thieves in this, in this land. I didn't, I didn't coin that phrase. The only time I, I saw it with the Tom Hanks thing, the round table. That might be where I heard it. Yeah. The round table. This too shall pass. Yeah. yeah it's one of the best things. And it's 30 seconds on YouTube. If you want to, we've played it before on the podcast, right? You could piece that shit in again, but I think it's a great place to stop for today because I have to piss so bad. <laughs> and this happens to me all the time because in the morning I drink a cup of coffee. Then I drink about a half a gallon of water while I'm working out. Then I come in here. And to suppress my appetite, because I don't eat breakfast anymore, I drink another cup of coffee. And then as we're talking, I drink about another, I don't know, 16 ounces of water. And now I'm close to tearing. <laughs> so this was great, man. Um, typically, this is about how long we go with the podcast. But, dude, I appreciate you being here. Is there anything? Thank you. Let's promote some of your stuff while you're here. Sure. Uh, you know, if you want to check out The Suffering Podcast, go to thesufferingpodcast.com. You can check me out on Instagram at realkevindonaldson.com. You can... Take a look at the book. Go to manyouarecrazy.com. And of course, we're all on social media. There's links to all that stuff. And I, I think I also there's also a website for me. It's realkevindonaldson.com. Yeah, that, that's it. Yeah, yeah. Tr yeah. These are the too many other Kevin Donaldsons. I had to make sure you're looking at the real one. Wait, you know, it's so original. You called it the real Kev Kevin Donaldson. Nobody's ever done that before. No, of course not. Yes, you're the first guy to I'm, do that. I'm yeah. the first guy. <laughs> all right, I'll see you guys later. Guys, if you're in an area where you're trying to get to our classes, but we're not close to you, fret not. We actually have on-demand training at streetcop.com. You can take that course online right now, and then 
You could attend that training in the future at no additional cost. You can redeem your voucher. So you get two for the price of one. We don't want to deny you the ability to take this training now, especially knowing that it can keep you safe at a very minimum, putting bad guys in jail where they belong and at the maximum going home to your family. Check out streetcop.com for that offer.